Just before the episode, I would like to thank all our Patreon members. You guys, the support means the world to me and helps keep this podcast going. And if you haven't signed up for Patreon yet, just so you know, Lindsay from formerly 33% Pulp and I cover a lot of different true crime and history media like The Keepers and the Paradise Lost series, as well as covering some topics that you guys probably wouldn't hear about otherwise. You know, we've covered the Ainu of Japan, we've covered Bernard Pernat, lots of different cases, as well as some surprise and different kinds of content such as crazy sci-fi movies comes up as well. So love if you would check it out. Thank you guys for all the support and allowing me to keep doing this for the past few years, so thank you. And now, on to the episode. Welcome back, friends, to the cult of domesticity. I'm very tired, (laughs) and we're back with Lindsay. Bread has taken over my life, fucked up the bread schedule, so my sleep has fucked up. I'm sorry if I sound really tired. That is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good that you're tired. I mean, and not sick, which is what I first thought when I heard your voice. (laughs) So at least there's that. That's why I was prefacing that, because I've also worked all weekend, so I do sound tired. And I get to go get my second COVID test since I've returned to work tomorrow. Hey, and this time I've actually been near the infected person. I've been, I've been um, so pumped to do this. So I'm talking about Natalie Wood today do you remember your first like i don't know experience learning about her life or death so i am a huge fan of the og christmas on 34th street or miracle on 34th street so that was my first experience with her and then i never knew anything and then i got really big into these weird unsolved mysteries and i found out and i was like what the fuck is this i think my sister told me to cover this shout out caitlin i know you don't listen because you're busy but I love your face. Yeah, you. And then, so my first contact with this was um, the 2000 Vanity Fair article where Davern, the um, Dennis Davern, the captain of the boat, I'll tell you about him. Um, he had come forward with more information. I, I remember I was at a baseball game, and I fucking hate baseball. And I was just reading this article, like completely intrigued, and and I had never heard of Natalie Wood, but she was massive. Can I please say I did not know where the end of that story was going like and then I got hit in the face with a baseball or something like that I didn't know it was like a wild roller coaster I was like no I fucking hate baseball it's like the most boring ass sport well I know people like baseball so if you like baseball that's chill and fine my dad likes baseball that's cool baseball you know but yeah Miracle on 34th Street was one of her was her biggest role. So Natalie Wood was born Natalia Nikolaevna Zakarenko. I like you do the same thing I do. You take a breath and you're just like, like pray to whatever God (laughs) you need to, to say it. (laughs) She she was born on July 20th, 1938. And so she was eight when she was filming Miracle on 34th Street. Her mom, who is sometimes called Mud and sometimes called Marie, was very much, she sounds very unhealthy insofar as she was one of those star moms. So yeah, her Mm -hmm. mom, you know, was from Russia. She spoke Russian, which is something that Natalie never spoke totally fluently, but was always, she was always very much intrigued by Russia. She did visit once and then was very unimpressed and came back. And when she got back on U.S. soil, she started singing uh, the Star Spangled Banner because that's how much she disliked Russia. 
Uh, That said, she did like Russian culture. This is something that her parents taught her. But the thing here and the thing to kind of keep in mind is how intense her mom controlled her life to the extent where she herself described her life as a dichotomy between Natasha, which is what um, they called her, even though her name was Natalia, they called her Natasha. I think it's like a you know, I don't know, actually, I think that that's kind of weird. Usually when it's like Benjamin, you're just like Ben. So Ben is shorter than Benjamin, but... It's the Russian version of it. Natalia and Natasha? Natasha is Russian. I don't think Natalia is Russian. Natalia is her birth name. I know, but the Russian nicknames make no sense, okay? <laughs> okay, yeah, I have it, no idea. Uh, so. If someone can explain it to me, please, but no, I'm pretty sure they don't make a lot of sense to me. So she, she does go by like all different kinds of things, but Natalie Wood is very much a persona and a persona that was born from her mom. When she was going around and doing these early auditions, um, her mom would lie to her. Her mom would have like a butterfly in a box and like rip its wings off so that she would cry. Um, On cue, she would tell her that the dog was dead and, and so that she would cry on cue. And so from a very young age, she did not have full autonomy at all. She was constantly ruled by her mom, ruled by very soon after she started um, acting and getting more successful, very much ruled by men in Hollywood. So her her big... Ah, uh, the patriarchy. The big, the big breakthrough was Miracle on 34th Street, which she filmed when she was eight. Um, basically, nonstop working um, to kind of foreground this. Most of my knowledge came from Suzanne Feinstead's updated version of her original book, Natasha. It's now called Natalie Wood. She re-released it with a new act or, or yeah, a new act called Revelations, where new information has come forward with the death that we will discuss in a minute. It was awesome. It's a great book. Highly recommended. I also watched the 48-hour special. Not as good as the book. There's a 48-hour special? (laughs) I also watched the um, BuzzFeed True Crime thing on it. And actually, that had different information. So I will try to credit as we go through where I got the information from. But the vast majority of this is coming from Suzanne Feinstead's Natalie Wood book. So she begins acting and she she herself at the time, so she would have been early, like preteens at the time, making a distinct distinction between a child actor and a child star. So she identified as a child as a child actor so she was she just was thrown into this professional realm and was seen as a professional so she's she's seeing a lot of people she her mom is like determining who she can see who she can have friends with uh, uh, be friends with um there's a boy at her school called jimmy wales who she was very much infatuated by he ended up um cutting off her pigtails at school which was a thing and for her actually i symbolized her move from childhood to adulthood because it symbolized like okay those are my you know braided pigtail things and now he cut them off and it was almost like I think in the book they align it with like losing one's virginity or something but so she is very much active by the time she's 17 she's in rebel without a cause right so that's one of the first movies that she's really well known for besides miracle on 34th street following movies would be things like west side story would be gypsy the movie that she did when she played gypsy rose lee the burlesque star she was in splendor in the grass and 
just actually a lot of movies, and I hadn't realized that she was in so many movies. Well, if you think about it, you said her mom is making her work all the time. I'm sure that control never really let up until her mom probably dies. So she's probably like, you're doing this, you're doing that. And it's the studio system, so you don't really get an option. Right. And so it's it's very much the studio system. And it was actually Miracle on 34th Street that brought Natalie Wood to Frank Sinatra's attention. So Frank Sinatra um, was introduced to her when she was 15. Suzanne Feinstead would later speculate that this is about when he started molesting her. He was one of uh, no. he was one of many no. people actually who would uh, sexually abuse her um, and then just take advantage of her. Another one was Christopher Ray or Nicholas Ray, um, the director of. Rebel Without a Cause, who invited her to his hotel room um, to do a reading. And it actually, I mean, it was basically a Harvey Weinstein where he locked her in the room and forced himself upon her in a way that was so violent that she had trouble walking and um, she did not go to the hospital because she was concerned about being, um, you know, found out, like, and then not getting the role. So, and those are just two of the instances. There were several others. Her one of her friends at the time said that for a 17 year old, she was way too savvy with men's bodies for a 17 year old, you know, Um, so. So she could have been you said Frank Sinatra was when she was 15. And when was the incident with her getting her pigtails cut off? That was preteens. Yeah. Preteens. So she might have the amount of abuse that could have been going on and her knowing, like, don't talk about it. Mm -hmm the hush-hush system of powerful men. Plus, you have to think, that fucks up your psyche a lot. It really fucks up your psyche, and it, and that's what I mean, is there was this strict dichotomy between Natasha and Natalie Wood, which comes up, I feel, a lot in her life. Later, another thing is, like, she, she very much, Natasha, I mean, she, she very much was controlled by her mom. One of the things, and one sign of this, is her mom was once told by a fortune teller in Russia that she would drown in dark water. So the mom, like was very concerned about this, you know, thought that she would definitely drown in dark water and so on, and was so afraid of dark water that this kind of got passed on to Natalie. So Natalie was always afraid of dark water. She did an interview in 1980, which would have been one year before she drowned in dark water, saying that she was deathly afraid. She said, I've always been afraid of dark water, seawater, and um, been afraid that she would die. One of the first instances um, of where this came up in her professional life. So one of the first instances of where like this dark water thing would come up and it, it comes up like three or four times in this poor woman's life. And it seems so odd, like considering how kind of specific that is drowning in dark water. So when she was filming The Green Promise, which was released in 1949, and I don't have the date of when she was filming this, she was supposed to run across like a broken, crappy bridge during a thunderstorm. And, and the bridge is over some tumultuous dark water. The bridge was supposed to collapse as soon as she got across it. Um, but it didn't. It collapsed when she was on the bridge, causing her to fall. She broke her left wrist and almost drowned. The director told the people to keep filming, to keep rolling, because it looked so real. And it was. And it terrified this poor child even more, you know. This this 
incident where she like broke her left wrist left her with a bone that kind of stuck out of her wrist that she was very much um, self-conscious about and she would always cover with a bracelet so that's another thing to kind of keep in mind is that she was very self-conscious about her wrist there was only one movie one scene in one movie where it is not covered she is never seen in public without something on her left wrist because she was so concerned about like this what she considered a deformity but if you think about it it's also a signal of that trauma too so you want to kind of you know like cover up the trauma with anything you can and you you've already said it seems like she disassociates things that happen to natalie because she's natasha i don't have a psychology degree but i think that seems kind of plausible the point about trauma is totally legit and now she's what she is doing almost like it it validates her her fear And now she's walking around with validation that she should be afraid of dark water. So her friend Scott Marlowe said that her mom basically, he says, quote, her mother was a pimp. Um, You know, he wouldn't be surprised if Natalie was pushed onto Sinatra, though Suzanne Feinstead uh, thinks that it was actually Sinatra going after Natalie. But either which way, she was with Sinatra. Scott Marlowe says, that wouldn't surprise me if you were a movie star. It could have been mutually both. Yeah, the mom and Sinatra. The mom and Sinatra. Yeah, for sure. Like it was even like the the mom being like, "You need to spend time with him. He's a powerful man. Do whatever you need to do to please him." Maybe not explicitly saying have sex with him or like do anything. And Sinatra just took like she's willing. I think it's so fucking you know? gross that she was eight in that movie, and then that's when like she first got his attention. Again, this is according to Suzanne Feinstead. So she marries Robert Wagner, also RJ, also sometimes Bob. So I'll probably call him RJ or Wagner moving forward. They get married in 1957 and when she was 19 and he was 27. No, no, this is a whole lot of nope. I'm sorry. She is still a child. I don't care if she's legally an adult. I still have a problem with this. He is much younger than the men she had been dating prior to this. So she was with a guy who was in his 40s. And I can't remember who it was, but like that was one of them. And I think Dennis Hopper, when they were filming um, Rebel Without a Cause, was saying how basically he saw her being passed around a lot. You know, Um, that was that was kind of part of the culture, I guess, and part of the way that she networked. It's fucking horrible. Um, As a side note, kind of interesting, she was very much fascinated by people who studied method acting. So method acting for just the, you know, Cliff Notes version is where you kind of try to embody the character as if you are that character and you live as that character, which is very much. So Daniel Day-Lewis is known for being a method actor. James Dean is known for being a method actor as well. Uh, Marilyn Monroe was trained this way. Um, Christopher Walken was trained in this way. So really yes. huh. <laughs> did not know that about him i mean that let's yeah this makes it lighter because this is just depressing right now as hell to think of how much trauma and how she, that's the only way she knows to get attention and get things she has to get is to use her body whether she wants to or not and she was like l- legit skilled you know she was quite skilled i think in part because her life was method acting because she was just kind of a shell of a person who had this exterior thing who was acting i mean i think it was kind of like a kaleidoscope of her mom and you know the roles she was playing and whatever guy was manipulating her at the time 
and all of this stuff. And so I think like she really had a based on my read of it, she struggled with like who she was. Um, you know, as as an individual, she didn't know. Or it was buried so deep inside to protect herself. Mm. You know, like because if you got tra- if you have trauma at a young age, they it seems like a lot of people, you just bury it just because it's safer. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, she marries Robert Wagner in 1957. They divorce five years later. The reasons for the divorce publicly were that was that. She was having an affair with Warren Beatty, with whom she filmed Splendor in the Grass in 1961. This is not true. This is how it was uh, documented in a semi-recent like film version of her life is that like th- the cause of their first divorce was her um, like cheating on him with Warren Beatty. She I don't think based I don't know. I, it doesn't sound like they had an affair. Instead, what I think is more likely is they divorced in 1962 when she saw him fucking the butler. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah. What? It was around this time where Robert Wagner was just like, um, he he took risky trysts, or his his trysts were risky. Like, he enjoyed that. So he would go into parties, and other actors would find him in a room with another guy with, um, he, you know, it's funny, in the book it says something like, it wasn't anything too bad, it's just one of them was fingering the other one's asshole. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, so this is kind of like going on on the de- down low, like behind the scenes shit. I'm not going to lie. The secret sex parties of like pretty much golden age on Hollywood is so crazy. You're just like, what the fuck? It's it's crazy. It's crazy. And she is part of that. Like she hung out with James mm-hmm. Dean and Dennis Hopper as noted like the, they were part of this like kind of cool kind of crowd that would eventually kind of go in that direction as well. I mean, look at she ma- married Robert Wagner. So what is interesting, um, I think, and useful here is that, you know, he identified as bisexual. Actually, I didn't know he identified as bi. Yeah, that's what he he di- actually. OK, correction. He um, has never identified as bi. <laughs> He's never identified as bisexual. Um but, I mean, there are so many records of him with other guys, like r- uh, random witnesses. Like he in one of his um, interviews, I think in the 50s, he is like interviewed with his fucking butler, David. Uh, it's like something vi- Cavendish, David Cavendish, who is an older British guy who was li- living with him and Natalie Wood when after they got married. Um, he was called their man about the house. So, and this is, you know, the guy that he eventually was caught with. So she, she took the whole public brunt of their first divorce because they just said, oh, she was probably fucking Warren Beatty. Because if you think about it, what, the 60s at that time, it was easier for him to say she was screwing Warren Beatty, probably released it, rather than being like, I was screwing my butler and she walked yeah. in because I like to screw men and women because, I mean, think about it. Bisexuality wasn't as wasn't as common to be out at that point, you know? Truly, I don't think it's, I mean, it's fucking 2020 and I truly don't think it's like totally mainstream, you know? I think still like within like gay and lesbian and or queer communities, certainly like you know, the trend has been not towards bisexuality um, or inclusivity of uh, bi people. But I think for the most part, I think here for me, what I think is significant is she 
let this happen. He let this happen. The rumors were just circulating. Probably this is the case. And she didn't deny them, which, you know, helped him hide his relationships with other men. She remarried to a guy called Richard Gregson in 1969 and divorced him in 1972, like literally, literally, like immediately after she found out that he was having an affair with his secretary, like immediately. <laughs> it's like something like that. Maybe she, it, maybe that like she just realized like, I can't do this. Like, I can't be the side piece. No. Or you can't have a Absolutely, side piece yeah. on it. Um, good for because her. She, because she was like, she kind of believed in marriage and family. She ver- very much believed in marriage and family. And so she wanted to protect RJ by saying, you know, yeah, I had an affair, whatever, whatever. But And so her public persona was damaged in this way. But personally, she very much valued marriage and family. That same year is when she remarried Robert Wagner. So they were married twice. Um, this is in 1972. You know, during that period of time, during all this period of time, she has like three kids and has like a plethora, a cornucopia of stepchildren at this point. I don't know how many. Sorry. Um, At this point now, like now we're basically at the late 80s. Uh, Excuse me. (laughs) She didn't need late 70s, '70s, early. uh, I would say late 70s. She was in really good shape and she loved the kids. But um, at this time, RJ is drinking a lot. He's drinking a lot. Meanwhile, she uh, was on a, a sleeping pill every night. She occasionally took a diet pill, which I believe is like speed in a sense. She sumped. Yeah, it's a methamphetamine. Yeah, she sometimes took prescription mood regulators as needed, which um, are known and still do will affect your um, alcohol like content and ability to like drink and hold your liquor. So that's something. Hmm. Um and she was uncomfortable with social drugs. So sometimes like online, I, you know, going through Reddit forums and shit, they'll be like, oh, you know, she was on the lewds, like quaaludes or whatever. And I, based on my read is like she wasn't actually. She very much stayed away from all of those like recreational type drugs. But she did take a sleeping pill every night um, and, and mood regulators as needed. I think if you think about it. She grew up in that period where a lot of people in Hollywood were on a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, she probably saw a ton of crazy shit. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, and here she was at Marilyn Monroe's 36th birthday party, which is something she later wrote about in what would be her un- unpublished autobiography. And she described like Marilyn Monroe going around muttering to herself how like now that she's 36, she's like old and like useless and you know, irrelevant. And so she was like, I never want to be 36. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, you know, Marilyn Monroe ended up killing herself only a few days after the birthday party. Hey! Okay, anyway. <laughs> I just feel like this is... This is just getting more and more depressing. Thank you. Have you have... We started off with my COVID test and we're just talking about people completing suicide. It's fine. Um, have you heard any jokes recently? No, no. me neither. Okay, anyway. So around this time... <laughs> just thought we'd throw in like a knock knock like just like now that we're at you know oh the comment will be so good around this time she was on an 800 calorie diet what 800 calories which left her with a 22 inch waist and she was looking ravishing uh which sounds like a starving to me 
But these are all things to keep in mind. So she's tiny as fuck. Tiny on... So she's easy to pick up and kidnap is what you're telling me. If one wanted to, yeah. She's tiny on mood regulators. Let's, Let's continue. One thing also to keep in mind too is like throughout all of this, despite his own extramarital dalliances, RJ was like very possessive and very insecure and very jealous so sometimes people would like jokingly say mr wood like call him mr wood um and he would get fucking pissed like he he really did not like this frequently he would be very jealous of her co-workers co-stars because she liked and respected them and would party with them and hang out and drink with them and everything and he did not like this um During their second marriage, they started fighting quite publicly. So this guy, one of their family friends, um, witnessed, this is a quote, quote, witnessed a few rows between RJ and Natalie, including one that went on a bit uh, when RJ told Mann that Natalie, quote, took an ugly pill and they'd be at each other for whatever the reason, end quote. So he would call her, he would demean her, call her ugly, and then they would um, fight publicly. Uh, December 31st, 18... (laughs) 92 i'm not i don't know i'm just kidding we're like in the 1800s now 1980 1892 damn 1980 now we're in 1980 it is uh new year's eve going into um 1981 rj they they have a massive party at their house um rj stands up and gives a toast saying things like i love you my darling natalie and um he says in fact you take my breath away. And he said this quite publicly. Um, and yeah, maybe that does, uh, you know, beat out like all of the uh, shitty fights that they had in front of other people and probably their children. But there it is. Um, I think it's significant that he says, like, you take my breath away, you know, because of what's going to happen next. So right around now <laughs> is when she starts filming her what would be her last movie called Brainstorm, which she co-starred with. Christopher Walken. They got along really well. They got along really well. And he was a method actor and she was like, I like you (laughs) a lot. People thought that they were having an affair. Likely it was like a really close emotional friendship where like they got along. They worked in the same field. They liked all the same things. He was married to a woman called Georgiana Georgianne Thawne, who uh, he married in 1969. And again, she was already married for the second time to RJ and they had kids and everything. So I don't get the sense that she would be having an affair. But it did look like to people that they had a very close relationship. And I think they had an emotional affair. I do think they likely had an emotional affair. They never physically cheated, but they just like form such a tight bond and that's why the jealousy would come out yes and so i think it's super weird like so yeah rj was like super jealous of this um relationship someone remembers um you know rj going out to the east coast they were filming in like one of the carolinas or something and to check on them and to like make sure that they weren't having an affair this is this is how crazy that guy is slash was slash possessive um so her sister Isn't he still alive? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, Her sister says, I think this was probably just a flirtation, which is different than having an affair, you know, but it it was it was right up against the uh, edge of that. I would just say they probably didn't move beyond because they both like knew it wasn't worth it because she like you said, she's very considerate of family and family life and those values. 
So if you're with that, you're not going to move to that next step and make it physical. I don't think so. Like, I just I just don't think so. But I do think they likely had a, a an emotional kind of connection, which still I, I still think it like matters. You know, I still think it it's a thing. Um, but then given this, given like RJ's thing, what weirds me out is that Thanksgiving weekend of 1981, they decide to go to Catalina Island with, for some fucking reason, Christopher Walken is there on this boat. So they are on their boat called the Splendor. Um, it's a it's a fairly sizable yacht. I mean, it's not just a fucking boat. This is like, these are movie stars on their yacht. Like, how big is the yacht? I watch a lot of Blow Deck. How how many meters? Meters? I Do don't you know? know. Let's see. I have a picture of... I mean, that's like a 60 foot, it looks like. I am horrible at judging this. Please don't ask so me. So important or relevant um, things are like here, the bridge. Can you see my mouse? Yes. The bridge. Um, Here would be like where the rooms are. And I, I do have a diagram. Sorry, listener. <laughs> She's going to send it all to me. It'll be on Facebook. Uh, You'll have to go to the Facebook page. I'm sorry. Yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a boat. It's a yacht. Um, and they have this uh, dinghy next to it. Mm-mm-mm. This is this is them. This is, well, obviously the back of the boat. <laughs> where unfortunate things happened. This is what would, this is called um, the Valiant, Prince Valiant, but they Mm -hmm. also call it sometimes the um, Zodiac. It's a 60 foot boat. Okay. I Googled it. And it has this uh, dinghy attached to it. So that'll come back. So if you guys watch Below Deck, that's a little boat that follows them. And that's how they transport you from the yacht to shore. Sometimes you just want to chill in the harbor or you have like a good vantage point and you want to go, I don't know, to other places. So yes, I watch a lot of Below Deck. It soothes me. It's very nice and beautiful places they go. You've recommended this to me before. It's I just want to pretend I'm somewhere warm. Winters in Ohio are bullshit. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the more or less the, the breakdown for you. Um, I'll, I'll send you all. I'll send Courtney this little document that I made showing color coded like known things and or events that happen with multiple witnesses. So for you, Courtney, and for listeners, that's going to be the stuff in the darkest color. And then I've color coded everybody's different responses and their different stories of what they say happened um, along the way. I love it. I love a good color coding. <laughs> you know this about me. I'm here for this. <laughs> so they uh, crossed from Marina del Rey to Catalina Island on Friday, November 27th, 1981. Walk-in isn't totally used to being on ships or drinking profusely, which seems like what they were mostly doing the entire weekend is just drinking a lot. He That seems fair. Again, I watch a lot of blow deck. They drink a lot on these boats. <laughs> he he lies down and um wakes up when around five o'clock when they reach Avalon. So another thing that I can show you is uh, this map of Catalina Island. Good, because I don't know any of it. So this is Avalon. This is Avalon Bay. Um, Avalon is, there's two main parts of Catalina Island. Avalon, which is in, I would say, it's the southeast kind of corner-ish of um, this long thing that looks like an upside-down turtle. 
<laughs> on this map. I don't know. What do you think it, it looks like? Looks like a drumstick. I guess so. Okay. Looks like a drumstick with the bone facing the top. Oh, I could see that. So this is Avalon. They reach there around 5 p.m. The other big part of the island is Two Harbors, which is over here, kind of on the northern part of the island. Um, in it's the bottleneck point where the chicken stops, but it's all bone. Yes, it looks like a dead chicken, like but on its back at a weird angle. But yeah, so it's where the neck would be. And then Avalon is kind of where the feet would be. Again, I'll send you these pictures. It does look like a dead chicken. The people of Catalina Island are screaming at us so loud. <laughs> so Friday, uh, 5 to 10, they go um, to shore to drink. This is, um, they drink just for, you know, five fucking hours they're bar hopping i think they go to like an arcade wagner buys some really expensive piece of jewelry for natalie wood that is in a barnacle which i hate barnacles and so i remembered that like it was in a barnacle and it's like that's fucking terrifying because have you ever thought about barnacles they're gross they're like fucking horrible i hate barnacles and they have that little thing i just love your strong position on barnacles <laughs> they're so Drinking, shopping, partying, Friday from 5 to 10. Um, Walken says around that night she was hesitant to go back to the Splendor because, quote, it was dark, it was cold, and she was afraid she would get wet. Again, remember, she has a lifelong fear of drowning in dark water. Sometime after 10, um, there's some sort of hubbub, hubbub and says to Davern, um, Dennis Davern, who is the, like, family friend slash captain slash like henchman for Wagner um you know RJ I want a henchman me too RJ and Natalie are fighting he starts to walk away saying never get involved in an argument between a man and his wife and so he goes to bed um around this time though actually Natalie and Davern the henchman guy, leave the boat. She goes with him and they check into two rooms at a hotel. However, only one of the rooms is stayed in. Next morning, Wood wakes up walking, saying she's going to go take the seaplane back to the mainland. And she wants to know if he's coming or staying. He says, I'm not in this. And, and he ends up staying on the boat. But so does she. They move from Avalon to Two Harbors, which is where I just showed you. And some time before two, Wood and Wagner go ashore to drink. This would be now in Two Harbors. A couple hours later, Wagner and Davern meet Wood and Walken at Doug's. They make a dinner reservation at 7 p.m. Everyone is wasted, drunk AF. We'll come back to this moment when I go through the other timelines, but everyone is wasted. Christopher Walken says that the glass that was broken was his fault. Um, he says, no, it wasn't anyone throwing glasses at each other. I threw my drink on the ground. Um, and then Natalie said that it was like a Russian tradition to drink and then throw your glass on the ground and break it. And so they, um, broke glasses and it was totally chill and fine and everything was fine. Not a big deal. The table had two bottles of champagne, two bottles of wine, five daiquiris and whatever they had been drinking before. You know, they've been drinking all day. At 10 p.m. they begin to leave the restaurant. But again, Natalie does not want to go back because it's too dark. It's too cold. And the weather had been quite stormy all 
weekend long. There were witnesses that said that she was so drunk she couldn't zip up her jacket and she had trouble walking. So a witness said, quote, it was sprinkling out and he put his coat over her head. This would be R.J. Wagner. And they walked out and she smacked into this wood tiki pole at the front door and quote, which is something I've certainly done before. But gosh, keep in mind, again, she's on this 800 calorie diet on mood stabilizers and has been drinking nonstop for like 48 hours. So that's a thing. Two separate calls are made to Harbor Patrol to keep an eye out for this group of, like, drunkards. And so they did. They both reported Natalie was stumbling and screamed, not like out of, like, like, not like because she fell or something, but she was angry. She was stumbling and angry when they got to the dinghy. They get back to the Splendor, like, somewhere between, let's call it 20 minutes later. um, And they all go into the main salon, which is the main room in this uh, yacht. Now... Here's where the stories really begin to diverge. So according to Walken, Walken and Wagner got into an anonymous small beef that disturbed Natalie. He would later tell the first investigator, quote, well, rather, this is what the first investigator says that Walken told him, quote, they had all been drinking and they had one of those conversations going where you kind of put your cards on the table. RJ was making statements and complaining that Natalie was away from home too much, that she was away from the kids and that it was hurting their home life. Walken stated he also got involved in this discussion supporting Natalie's view that she was an actress, she was an important person. This was her life. He suddenly realized he was violating his own view about getting involved with an argument between a man and his wife. So he went outside for air, and when he got back, he says everything seemed fine. So that's his account of what happened in the first half of 10 o'clock hour back half. Natalie's back in her room. Um, Let's call it 1040. He knows um, that she went there to go to bed. And the next thing he knows is the captain is saying that the dinghy is gone. And at about the same time, they noticed that Natalie was gone. So Natalie, according to all records combined, Natalie goes missing somewhere between 1045 and 1130 p.m. Okay, so at 130 p.m., so two hours, like, let... A.M.? Oh, yeah. Sorry, A.M. So... Let's call it 1130 that she goes missing. At 1.30 a.m., the first call to the island is made. Wagner says, quote, this is a splendor. We need help. Somebody's missing from the boat. Uh, He didn't want to get the Coast Guard involved because she was likely just drinking at the bar is what he originally said. He was slurring his words, making it hard for hard for people to understand him. Um, But he was just making a point that like, you know, we're celebrities and we don't want to make a big deal. Like if she's just drinking at the bar at 1.30 in the morning after a lifetime of being terrified of water. Um, So the early search party was a restaurant manager and a maintenance man looking on the island for Natalie. The saddest thing. Two people. Two people who shouldn't be. They were just they happened to be listening to this like radio. Um, It was it was very random. 2 a.m. Wagner is dropped off, dropped off at two harbors um, at the Harbor Patrol to search the natter- the waters for Natalie. So now, 2 a.m., he is looking for Natalie with Harbor Patrol. 15 minutes later, he goes back to the Splendor because he's frustrated she can't be found. 2.30, so we're still in the 2 o'clock hour, Harbor Master goes to the Splendor and finds Davern and Wagner drinking like buddies. They were so drunk they had trouble putting words together, but agreed, quote, they saw no reason she would have gone to a shore 
gone ashore again, end quote. Another thing that he would say like publicly is, oh, he he thinks that she went to the hotel to call her kids for some reason at midnight. Weird. His story changes a lot. 3.30 a.m. is when the Coast Guard is finally called because just these are randos helping this guy because he's a celebrity. Well, like the Harbor Master, I get like in the Harbor Patrol. That's like part of their job. But like to make sure everything's okay. But I think as soon as they've been informed that someone's missing, probably should call the Coast Guard. He was very adamant. But again, like he specifically said, don't call the Coast Guard. Don't call Baywatch, which was something that I hadn't heard of since the 90s. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he did not want Baywatch called. 5.30 a.m. is when they find the dinghy with oars locked, ignition off, gear set to neutral, and scratch marks along the side. Oh no. A couple hours later, 7.44 a.m. is when Natalie is found. So she is found wearing socks, a flannel nightgown, and a down coat. It's a red down coat that, because it like has filled up with air, is kind of holding her like afloat on the water. But she's otherwise just hanging there. Um... Notable about her body is that she has bruises and cuts on the left side of her face and bruises bruises all along her arms, the exterior part, like her anterior part of her arms and legs. So she's got bruises here, 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 here. <laughs> Sorry, listener. Her nose, her mouth, the left side of her face, her neck, um, her right arm, elbow, her right forearm, her left wrist, her left uh, thigh, left elbow, uh, what the fuck? Knee. Jesus, body parts. Her left knee, her right knee, and some uh, something on her ankle. So I could see like her legs being more bruised because if you're in the water, if you bump bump up against things, but you said her coat was inflated. Mm -hmm. So that would definitely probably protect some of your body. Later coroners would say that these bruises were fresh bruises that would have happened right before she died. I hate it. So Natalie is found at, uh, excuse me, 744. Wagner decides now is when he wants to get on a helicopter. So he and Christopher Walken get on a helicopter and head back to L.A., sending Davern to identify the body of his wife. Fuck him. They interview with the police around 10 and they are like, wow, we have no idea what is happening. So let's jump over to Wagner's um, kind of breakdown of what happened. Now, his story has changed so many times that like what I'm telling you probably isn't even all of the story. It's it's changed a lot. So what I have here are things that he said at least twice or that I saw at least twice across my um, sources. So Saturday 2, 2 p.m., he wakes up and he finds out that Wooden walk in. This is when they had gone ashore to drink. He says, okay, fine. These fuckers are probably cheating on me, <laughs> you know. So he goes with Davern a couple hours later and meets them there. Wagner begins a political argument with Walken. So keep in mind at this dinner, when they have two bottles of champagne, two bottles of wine, five daiquiris, and whatever they had been drinking before then, because Wooden Walken had been drinking, you know, prior to him arriving there. Um, this is when he thinks it's a good idea to start a political argument with Walken. Solid choices. <laughs> Solid choices. So ev- otherwise, things are the same. You know, everybody's seeing this drunk-ass party. A lot of people are saying there is a lot of tension at the party. Um, by a lot of people, I mean the servers there, the managers there, the host there and other um patrons of the restaurant not gonna lie 
Daph definitely noticed that. Yeah. Because we got better shit to do than watch you. The first server for the table was actually so annoyed at their behavior that someone else took over for her. Definitely have never done that. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, I cannot deal with these fuckers. So they get back to the Splendor. You know, they're all wasted. Everybody's, you know, calling the Harbor Patrol to, like, make sure that, you know, they get back to their boat okay. And they're so they get back to the Splendor. They all go into the main salon. Wagner continues his political argument with Walken. He says, quote, Natalie sat there, not saying much of anything and looking bored. She left us after about half an hour and we sat there talking for almost another hour, end quote. He says the argument was nonviolent. When police later went into the main salon, it looked like a fucking brawl had happened. Like, notably, is the, notably this wine bottle had been smashed up against a table. He says... No, they were just having a political discussion. It was nonviolent. The wine bottle must have just broken by itself because of the water and it was stormy. Um, However, in his 2009 autobiography, you know, with the clarity of 30 years after this drunken weekend, he he says, oh, he did break the wine bottle. (laughs) Glad he's willing to admit that. You know what? I didn't do anything else, but I did break that wine bottle. That was my bad. I'm sorry. Yeah, but, but it's 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 significant because everybody was like, well, what was the atmosphere like when you got back? I mean, the atmosphere for the whole weekend was drunken anger, really. And so... Drunken, awkward, jealous yeah, anger. Yeah, drunken, jealous anger. He says that um, around 1045 or 1130, this is around the time when Natalie goes missing, he says he went in to give her a kiss goodnight and noticed she was missing soon after he finds the dinghy is gone. I think it's fucking weird as shit that it's so specific. He went in to give her a kiss goodnight after this angry throwing full-on wine bottles across the, you know, main room. Um, he goes to give his wife a kiss goodnight. So, but according to his story, she was just bored and decided to go back to her room, you know? So that's what... Which is not what Walken says. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And we know that RJ has already shown to be really jealous and it could have been building all weekend and he could have confronted her back in the room or something like that, said something. We don't know. So, yeah, we don't know. So we know, though, that she goes missing somewhere between 1045 and 1130 p.m. Around 11 p.m., people hear a male and female voice arguing. They think it is at the back of the Splendor. And this is the first time ear witnesses have been sighted. At exactly 1105 p.m., John Payne, Marilyn and Anthony Wayne. I, Payne and Wayne. I just thought it was so like, so this guy <laughs> and his girlfriend, Marilyn Wayne, um, hear a woman crying, somebody please help me. I'm drowning. They also hear men's plural voices. Oh, don't worry. We'll help you. And hold your hat. We're coming to get you. They called the harbor master, um, who was off duty at 1030 and then uh, called the Avalon, called Avalon, who sent a search helicopter, but did not. It never came. Meanwhile, they began using their searchlights, but the water was super choppy and they couldn't see anything. I think it's interesting that the woman says, please help me. I'm drowning. Because if you're actively drowning, you don't get the chance to talk. So she must have been struggling. Like, because there's there's a couple different ways you drown. So there's active, which you're thrashing around and what you normally see. And people are like, oh, their mouth is up. It's like, no, if you're at that point of drowning, you are not talking. So she's probably struggling. She's getting to the point of active drowning. A passive drowning is when like you hit your head and you just sink. So you're already like out 
and you're just underwater. Um, that's a scarier one for me just because you have to then get someone out. You have to back, you have to put them on a backboard to get them out of the water. I mean, active drowning is scary because if you are careful getting them and calming them, they can take you down. Like lifeguards are trained to deal with people freaking the fuck out and no one realizes it. Were you trained as a lifeguard? I was a lifeguard for six years. I have saved double digits number of people. Um, Wow. I've backboarded double digits number of people. Never had to do CPR. I've done a ton of first aid. Uh, But yeah, so like for them, she's definitely like, you could see if you're freaking out that much, you're definitely getting towards the part of actively drowning and your mind goes immediately irrational. There's like nothing you can do. And it's, it's scary to watch. So I completely get these people being like taking it, 110% 110% seriously because if someone's free, free, freaking out that much you're going to start swallowing water you're going to get water in your lungs and even if you do get them out on time say they do have water in your lungs you can dry drown like so if if you safety tip uh if you get someone out who has swallowed water still take them to the er because there could be water in their lungs and they can like die later on you don't you don't know so safety tip i know we're in the winter now in the u.s but like definitely if you see that and you pull them out and they're still coughing it's a good idea to go and still get them checked out because let's say you pull them out you don't know how long they've been under or something or like how much water they swallowed you don't want to say coulda woulda shoulda with drowning and another thing like because she's wearing this down jacket this down coat which would eventually be a flotation device but for this tiny tiny woman who had been on an 800 calorie diet and drunk as fuck so that she couldn't even like zip it up earlier that night um it would it would become saturated with water and it would be even harder for her to swim which was something that she was not skilled at slash didn't know how to swim it was one or the other she didn't know how to swim or she was bad at it and swimming with clothes so you said it's down i don't know what kind of material it is anytime it's waterlogged you have to be pretty strong so she, even if she was strong you're drunk dealing with drunk people in the pool is the worst <sighs> and water is the worst just because they think they're helping and their movement your movements are more erratic and slow and she okay she's wearing flannel that's gonna get filled with water Like, a lot of it is just going to get really waterlogged, and it's going to make all of her movements more difficult. You need to get, like, a ring to her, give her something. You want to do a ring. You don't want to put, like, a shepherd's crook or something or put something out there because she can pull you Mm. in. That's always a fear. Oh, gosh. Like they they did say um, they turn on their searchlights. They wondered if they should get in their dinghy to look for it, but they had deflated it earlier in the day. So they didn't have an accessible or quickly accessible dinghy themselves. Uh, so they couldn't. But you have to think they also have to think of their safety. They don't want like they said it was choppy. And if it's going to take so long, like she might blow away. You might then get lost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, sometimes you have they always tell you you have to make sure you're safe first in order to rescue people. It's like, hey, the building's on fire. I need to make sure I I can get people out, but I also have to make sure I can get out. Right, right, right. For sure. And, you know, as you know, like timing. So it's only it's 20 minutes later that they estimate the woman's cries stop. So they are listening and they're, they, they're quoted as saying it was a good 15 minutes. They estimate 20 that they hear this woman like crying and men's voices mocking her that's just i mean how bad do they feel though because they later on they have to know they listen to her die oh yeah they have to know and they had gone to the police too yeah and they try to do like they tried to do everything right and it's just i mean drowning is 
a horrible death. It's a horrible thing to witness. It's scary. And I couldn't imagine listening to it because you know when she stops talking, she's just inhaling water at that point. Yeah. They had given statements after they found out that it was probably Natalie Wood who had... um who they had heard they gave they went directly to the police and they told them what was said but their you know testimony was buried and never used powerful people so he ended up you know he went and was interviewed by the police around 10 a.m you know uh he said quote it was only after i was told that she was dressed in a sleeping gown heavy socks and a parka that it dawned on me what had really occurred Natalie obviously had trouble with that dinghy slamming up against the boat. So he is saying that, and now I have the, the layout of the, um, the boat that they were on. So this is the dinghy. And note that, um, you know, the dinghy is actually tied in two places. So he's saying that she was here, mm-hmm. annoyed by a rubber dinghy bumping up against the boat here. So listeners, oh, sorry. The- the dinghy's at the back of the boat. The bed is kind of like halfway through, but there's like a rear dock there as well. Mm-hmm. So there is space, but if they've already been sleeping on this boat, you got to kind of think. And it's tied in both both places. And she is a fucking movie star who has hired a captain for her boat trip um, who's still awake. So why would she be going to fix this dinghy situation is one of the main questions here. But he says that this is obviously what happened. He, in fact, says it happened many, many times before. And I had always gone out and pulled the ropes to keep the dinghy flush against the yacht. She probably skidded on one of the steps after untying the ropes. He says, quote, the steps are slick as ice because of the algae and seaweed that's always clinging to them. After slipping on the steps, she hit her head against the boat. I only hope she was unconscious when she hit the water. So significant here, as many people would say later, is a couple things. Number one, she wouldn't go get the mail without like having a full face of makeup on. So he's saying she was wearing a nightgown and socks to go out on to her boat to do this thing. He also people are saying that like she was super, super intense about boat safety. I mean, be, in part because she's so terrified of drowning. So she, I don't think, would have done this. I, I don't think she would have done this. Finally, the last kind of, um, I think, damning evidence here is that the algae on the step hadn't been messed with. It, it was fine. There was no evidence of slipping. But to him, Interesting. he said, oh, this it dawned on me what really occurred. She obviously, you know, did this shit that was super fucking specific <laughs> in this very specific order. Like, what the fuck? <sighs> and I feel like Paul Holes, uh, Kenda, all our TV cops that we love are calling bullshit right now. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm sure that's what happened. So we do have one last person on this boat who is still alive, and that would be Dennis Davern, uh, the captain, who would have normally been the guy to do all these boat-type things, but I guess in Wagner's view, he wasn't. He's paid to do that. He's paid to do it. So around Friday night, remember when Walken said all of them stayed on the boat? No one went uh, anywhere. They all slept on the boat is when Davern and Wood stayed in the hotel. Um, Remember, they had gotten two rooms and they only ended up using one. Davern says that they went back to this her room or rather his room and they were drinking wine. Um, There was unbearable tension even before them. 
that led to a fight. And again, remember when Walken said never get involved in an argument, um, but Walken would con- contradict himself later and say that all four of them stayed on the boat. In fact, Davern would later say, first say that they all stayed on the boat, even though later he would be like, oh, right, I, we spent a night together. And that's actually one of the reasons why Davern is like, while his account actually lines up and makes a lot of sense, because it went back and forth so many times and because it, for me, it's pretty clear that he was just in it for the money, um, people don't trust him. So this is what I think, you know, what I have here is basically what seems legit. So, okay. I wonder if he also like, because you said he was really close to RJ. I wonder if kind of RJ was like, hey, this is our narrative. I, that is my theory is that RJ did something or they, Dennis and RJ did something. And what I don't understand is where Christopher Walken was during all of this time and why his story would be changing all over the place. You know, he refuses to talk about it anymore. Fair. I mean, fair enough. Fair. Yes. I mean, especially if you had nothing to do with this horrible thing. Um, But also if you had nothing to do with this horrible thing, like, why not? But I think it's also he's constantly he was constantly asked about it for so long. And if he was if they were that close, do you want to think about how one of like your best friends died this horrible thing and maybe you're sworn to secrecy maybe you can't talk about it you know so he says when they stayed the night at the hotel together um natalie wood told him all about wagner's jealousy basically saying that she wanted a divorce she couldn't stand it anymore so you know they come back and this is when you know you know the next day robert wagner is taking a nap wakes up to the note and already you know natalie wooden Christopher Walken, we're at the bar and everything. They have that drunken dinner, etc. They go back to the boat. So now here we are Saturday night. What he says happened when they first got back is, yes, they all went to the main salon. That is something that they all say. However, he says, we got back to the boat and Natalie's in a giggling state by now, talking with Christopher and being pretty chummy. And it was beginning to upset RJ to the point where he had to explode. He later revised his account saying, RJ and Natalie got into a discussion about her being gone and how RJ missed her. This is in line with what Walken said. During this discussion between them, Chris Walken entered into it and supported Natalie's view. RJ then smashes a wine bottle on the table and says... What do you want to do? Fuck my wife? At that point, Chris knew it was time to leave the room because if he didn't, it could have turned into a big fight. I could believe that, you know, because RJ even admits later he broke the wine bottle. And I think it could have started off. It could have been both like they were having a chummy conversation, joking around, walk in RJ and Natalie, then start fighting about something stupid because he's just trying to get her attention. Just kind of like side slash stepping backwards diagonally. I'm wondering why, again, I'm wondering why Christopher Walken is there in the first place. Like, why would RJ let this happen when he was already that jealous of this guy who just won an Oscar for the Deer Hunter PS? Like, he's very insecure about his career. He's very insecure about his possession over his wife. At the restaurant, this is another interesting observation. And this is in the book, uh, Suzanne Feinstead's book. But she's saying at the restaurant, people were seeing... Natalie did look like she was flirting a lot with Christopher Walken and slash but RJ seemed to be flirting with Christopher Walken. Interesting. So uh, one of the things that I thought maybe just, you know, because who the fuck knows really, but maybe he was like flirting with him almost to try to get back at her because he knew she hated him being bisexual and he was jealous. So it was kind of this like tit for mm -hmm. tat. That's kind of what I wondered. 
But And C- Christopher Walken is just stuck there in this awkward dinner party. <laughs> He's just like, I thought I was invited for a nice weekend with your husband and you. Mm-hmm. Like, we all get to know each other. Like, maybe to try. Maybe it was they were trying to show him, like, hey, we're just friends. Like, this is an easy thing. We're just friends. We're not. Nothing's happening. Maybe. And RJ just can't get over it. Because I could see that being a thing, like, let's all get to know each other. That way, this isn't a problem. I could see that. I could see that. And, like, you know, him being, like, too proud to say no, you know, that he couldn't be okay with it. Uh, But then he's faced with the reality of what that looks like, that kind of deep emotional connection that he doesn't clearly feels he does not share with her for some reason or something. Anyway. So back at the stateroom, Davern's saying that they got in a fight. He throws the wine bottle. Natalie is so devastated at the way RJ acted that she just got up and went straight into her stateroom saying, RJ, I'm not standing for this a minute longer. So this is quite dramatic and different from what both Christopher Walken and um, Robert Wagner says. Davern says that Wagner follows directly after, yelling, throwing things, and he hears what sounds like a physical fight. Um, This concerns Davern so much that he knocks on the door and Wagner tells him to go away but that kind of like didn't the ear witnesses say they heard they fighting? heard fighting a man and a woman fighting so that would kind of make sense and you said this the salon looked like there had been a fight mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it could have just been rj like showing his rage yeah i think it was like they were fighting i mean everybody's fucking wasted is another thing everyone is wasted as fuck So, you know, they likely, you know, I can't find my map of the yacht anymore, (laughs) but um, they, you know, they went from their stateroom. They started in the stateroom. He, Davern at this point, after he's told to go away, um, he goes up to the bridge and can hear more fighting. Now it sounds like they're on the back of the boat, which is where the ear witnesses think that is most likely, I mean, It wasn't the front of the boat, so it was probably the back of the boat where the dinghy was. They think that they heard clearly a woman in a man's voice. So, you know, Natalie goes missing around 1130. He doesn't engage. He doesn't do anything. He just sits there, I guess, according to him. 1130, Wagner meets Davern up on the bridge. He seems tussled and out of breath as if he had just doing some kind of, was doing some kind of strenuous labor. He says Natalie is missing. Davern and Wagner look but can't find her on their on the yacht. Davern suggests using the spotlight and using the floodlights, which would illuminate the water around them, but Wagner says no. Weird. Likely, she's gone back to the island to call the kids, and they don't want to make this a big deal, so they drink scotch for over an hour. Uh, I wonder if there was something else said to make him really not do anything, because I feel like he's liable. Like, he's responsible for all of them. I think all three of them are. How can... People now there's been so many people online that like explain sound over water and like how it is possible for Christopher Walken to be in his room on the boat and the, the sound from the boat like muffling out someone yelling outside to help her. But, you know, a lot of people are saying, why would these other boats like the closest one being 70 feet away, hear her in their room, but Christopher Walken didn't. But think about it, if you're drunk off your uh, ass. Yeah. That's the other fucking and you factor. you fall asleep. I'm sorry, my drunk sleep, I am dead. And I live like near a busy road and I don't hear like, and I have like my neighbors will be like somewhat loud sometimes because there's teenage boys that live next to me. Like, I can't hear shit. I just pass out. I have a good t- little sleepy sleep. <laughs> I regret it in the morning, but still. Yeah. So 
I mean, it is the other fucking factor, right? So, like, I don't really know. Um, but I don't know. Get blackout drunk and fall asleep in the room and have someone scream. I, I feel like, like I would there's hear ways that. to recreate yeah. this. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. So another thing is, I mean, Walken's story has, he, um, gosh, words today. Walken's story changed. So it got like it changed in specificity and it changed over like where they were, what they were fighting about. He didn't even say anything about this political disagreement. I wonder if it's just how memory changes over time, too. Also, how much of this night do they actually remember is another thing. Like, maybe that's maybe true. he fucking murdered the shit out of her. Well, OK, maybe he beat the shit. Maybe RJ beat the shit out of her. Walken was blackout drunk, had gone to bed or gone to a different part of the boat, passed out, didn't hear shit. Like two people are making fun of her as she's drowning then, you know? The ear witnesses say there were two men's voices, at least two men's voices mocking her. So here's why Suzanne Feinstead uh, released an updated version of her biography of Natalie Wood. It's because two reasons. Number one, Davern has come forward with more information saying that he saw Robert Wagner push her off the boat saying and that the last things that Robert Wagner said to her was get off my fucking boat. I could see that if he was so jealous and he was just like done. He's like, you're flirting with this guy. Like you're ignoring me. I should be the only one kind of like if I can't have you, nobody can. Mm -hmm. That could be a very plausible answer. Yeah. Yeah. And then another, you know, response would be would be. The only reason we know that is because he sold that information like m decades later. So like to what extent is this real? Right. So the other thing, though, the other part of this is that they were relooking at those um, marks on her body. So I'll show you the, the body again. Yeah. Lindsay's showing the autopsy report version of a body. She's not showing me actual pictures of I should say she's not showing actual pictures of the body. I'm sure they have them. Yeah. They can be found, and I didn't. But want to. she's not showing me like pictures of a dead body. I should yeah, it's just like the, the autopsy, or yeah, the how do you say like coroner report type thing. It's the coroner report of where the injuries are. We've all seen it on a bunch of crime shows, you mm -hmm. know. So these scrapes, what she noticed later is that they were in the wrong direction of someone who was trying to get on a dinghy. Okay. Instead, they're in the direction of scrape their scrapes as if one had been pushed or or one they're not in the like if you're trying to climb onto something, the scrapes would look a certain way and be in a certain direction, but these are outside of her leg. This is the outside of her thigh. They would be going up. Like they'd be like if you're trying to climb up, it's going to be Think of how you get in and out of a pool. They're going to be on your calves. They're going to maybe be on your knees. They're on the side of her, what, right thigh? Left thigh, yeah. Left thigh. Anytime I've gotten out of a pool and I've, like, scraped up stuff, like, there are some on our calves, but they're, the majority seem to be, like, she got pushed over on her left side. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I could see that. After her findings, actually, they re... The, the, the case was never closed. It was always an open case. They just said that it was an accident and they wrote it off. They did not ask, you know, Wayne and Payne for their information. They, even though they came forward and offered it, they didn't really investigate the autopsy um, or anything in that regard. So she was buried. There was a funeral. Gotta be so hard because you said she's a stepmother and has her own kid. Can you imagine just not knowing what actually happened? The kids. The sister has been, her sister Lara has like 
spearheaded basically it seems like she dedicated the rest of her life to trying to figure this out you know she did not originally blame rj even though get this too they didn't find out they they only found out because a family friend saw natalie wood's death on tv so the family friend called them and woke them up on sunday morning he didn't fucking call her parents or well her mom who was the only one alive her father had passed away he didn't call them i'm sorry i couldn't imagine having a partner and not informing them of my spouse's like parish (laughs) yeah i mean like dying he was also hungover and drunk and in a weird place um however he did call his daughters and he arranged for their children together to see a child psychologist (laughs) okay i mean in some regards better so she was buried uh her pallbearers were elizabeth excuse me no no they weren't um i might have copied and pasted the wrong information here we go she uh her at her funeral her pallbearers were rock hudson sir Lawrence olivier who flew in from um england for this elia kazan gregory peck david niven fred astaire and frank sinatra good to know he molested her young and helped bury her cool it is suzanne feinstead's opinion that the reason why this went away so quickly was filed as an accident and was not really investigated at all to any degree was because of frank sinatra and robert wagner's connections and money the person that interviewed robert wagner his first interview was with that guy Dwayne Razor. The interview was six minutes long, and Dwayne Razor, when he later spoke of it, mostly spoke about how cool it was that he got to interview a celebrity. I'm screaming into the void right now because no one wants to listen to it, but I'm screaming. Can inside. you believe? And then, like, he also said, like, he described the way that he had gotten the coffee and he offered it to him, and you know, RJ took it from him and nodded or whatever the fuck. And it's like, really, this is. This is what, you know, and so, I mean, it was 81, you know, that he was a celebrity, had been for decades. He was a big star. These people are big names. You know, Christopher Walken had just won the Oscar, like I said. These are big people. And so he was like, oh, well, you know, probably it's fine. (laughs) So as we always know, it's not fine. What's interesting is since so many so much time has passed and they have basically lost evidence and shit, the murder book that has all kinds of information, including Wayne and Payne's information and all that, that she, uh, Suzanne Fine said, had taken pictures of and and documented when she got to look at it, is now missing. Of course. The, ca- the case was never closed, but they, like, actively reopened it or something. They announced that they just, hey, we're still doing this, everyone. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, they they were they were renewing interest in it because it's a cold case. Uh-huh. They can't actually charge anyone with the murder anymore. However, they can like take different legal. They can't say murder, but they could do other things. And so they have said that Robert Wagner is a person of interest in Natalie Wagner, uh, Natalie Wood's death, which. I think he fucking is, but I, I still, I still maintain my position that like, I think all three of them are sketchy motherfuckers who, you know, if it is true, also like if Davern's account of the entire weekend is being so angry and jealousy filled and like violent and all that shit, like why is walking there? He shouldn't be there. Like it is weird that Walken's there if it's all this angst about it. mm -hmm. And he's married himself. So I really feel like it was a weird invite to be like, 
I'm cool. Like, just be like, just let, let's like Natalie trying to do an olive branch kind of thing. Like, I promise you there's nothing going on. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And Wagner just like you said, he had so many deep seated jealousies over her and controlling her and walk in seemed to get his wife better than he did. So he's pissed about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So my th- my theory is like Walken woke up at some point and found out and Wagner and Davern, probably Wagner threw her overboard as Davern said, but he saw this fucking happen and didn't do anything about it for decades was after this happened, he moved into Robert Wagner's Beverly Hills home. That seems like either RJ wanted to keep an eye on him. Or there was some sort of agreement come to that night before everything got. It does not su- came out in any situation. This looks sketchy as fuck. I think. Yeah. He um and then slowly this information comes out from him. Um, one incident was when he went on Geraldo, and he and this um woman that was going to help him write a book, and they did release a book later, Marty Rooley. He makes a comment to her. They're on hot mics, and he makes a comment like, "Oh, like what about what do I say w- about like him pushing her?" And she's like, "No, don't say that. We got to put that in the book. We'll make a bu- bunch of money, like, because we'll, when we put it in the book." And so then after everybody's like, "Fucking, there's pushing involved." Like, what the fuck, you know? And so then it wasn't... It's a jinx situation where they didn't realize the mics were still live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, that's the fucking story. That's all we know. I wonder if the captain feels really guilty now. And it's like, it's because initially you have to think he's so close to Wagner, but they probably have, like, like separated ways and all of that over the years. And... He probably just wants to, like, certain people, I'm pretty sure we're going to probably get a deathbed confession or something. I hope. About what actually I happened. just feel like Walken, because his stories were inconsistent, and he was there drinking with them, he was there, like, minutes before this likely happened, you know? I mean, yes, it's very, po- based on, like, the, the degree to which they sound like they were fucking wasted, yeah, he could have just passed out, like, immediately. Like, I have also done that, you know? But but I could see what you said, like, he woke up and probably stumbled across it, and they were like, this is our story, keep to it, and that's why he can't remember the details anymore, because it isn't the actual and, story, it's what he was told to yep, tell. That's kind of what I think. And so he's implicated in this, like, because he didn't say anything to begin with, and then, so now he's fucked himself, kind of, because he didn't... He's a conspirator after mm-hmm, the fact. Mm-hmm. That's my personal theory, based on, like, what I've read um, in in Suzanne Feinstead's Natalie Wood book, which is really actually quite good. The only thing that I wish she had done is I wish she had cited things. Like, where did she get all of this information? She does, like, say, oh, Natalie's friend, you know, in an interview. She apparently interviewed over 400 people for the book. And she spent something like four years on on this book, which Robert Wagner never said that he read, but was full of lies. (laughs) I love that. Um, yeah, aren't you glad I told you to read that book? I am, actually. I'm really glad that you you told me about it because it it was really... It's it's a, it's a project kind of to to work through, but it's an enjoyable one because you learn or I learned so much about this poor woman's life, her her talent, how talented, how dedicated to work she was, how cool she seemed. She seemed to be a good friend, a really excellent mother to her children, actually. And so it's just so sad that someone with a, inversely like a super tragic. Oh, another thing. Sorry, I had notes. I was like, I know I'm gonna forget this. Okay. Remember how she took a sleeping pill every night to go to sleep? She hadn't taken the sleeping pill yeah. yet. Um, you know how she was wearing, she always wore that left thing? She didn't have that on her wrist. 
Like, where the fuck was that? Um, but her, there was a gold chain around her waist and she had rings on. So it was like clear that like something happened to the thing on her wrist. I mean, there's just uh, sketchy things. The coroner said that her blood alcohol level was 0.14. Damn. Which, yeah, like 0.08 is like you don't want to drive. 0.14 is probably... You legally are not allowed to drive. <laughs> probably lay down. But this is also like, you know, after she had died. So, yeah, get off my fucking boat, says Davern, said Wagner. <laughs> Please tweet at us and let us know what do you think happened to Natalie Wood? Yeah, what do you think? Also, like, you know, what other details? Because it's true that, like, there are so many different variations on all three of these guys' stories. Like, maybe I missed something and there's something, um, you know, to note or note. But this is the end of Lindsay's journey this time on the regular feed. If you want to hear more of Lindsay, all the notes, because she wrote beautiful notes for the Black Death. <laughs> she showed them to me already. She's going to send them to me because that's what we do. We're weirdos. We know it. But that all that stuff's on Patreon. So if you want more Lindsay, good times, you know, f interesting social media or um, interesting media for history and true crime, check out the Patreon feed. It's going to go through a little rework for the new year, but it'll definitely be crazy awesome. So we will see you next time with a new guest. Lindsay and I are going to go record a Patreon episode now. <laughs> I'm going to get another tea because I need caffeine. Boom, boom. Bye. Bye. Yeah, I love etymology. Spooky. Murderer. Double murder. Zombies. Horror is always political. Mm -hmm. I don't like that at all. Hi, I'm Alex. And I'm... And I'm Sunshine, her creep-enabling best friend. Together we tackle all things horror. Politics, science, and sociology. Zombies. Pomegranates and Pitchforks is a horror and true crime podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. Hey, Sasha. Hey, Courtney. Where can you get hot takes about ghosts, cryptids, farts, and cats? I don't know. Where? On our podcast, Spoop Hour. Oh, that's right. Each week, we talk about the things that spook us out and we laugh through our fear. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Spoop Hour and you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, or really anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Feel free to also drop us a line at spoophour at gmail.com. You want to hear about your ghosts? Thanks. Don't miss Sicity. We're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts and our Instagram is at the Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free. <laughs> <laughs>